Hello, I'm Brian Solomon. These are Conversations with Brian Solomon, a series of podcasts for Trains Magazine. And today uh, we're revisiting uh, Peter Rigney, who's got a PhD in history and a specialist on, on railway subjects in Ireland. And uh, we're in Dublin, actually in a little suburb called Terranure, which is uh, south, south of the city centre in Dublin. And it's a, a cold, wet, windy, rainy night, which I think, Peter, you'd say is probably pretty typical of this time of year. So Pretty typical for a November in Ireland. Yeah, so... So here you are, and um, previously we discussed um, some topics doing, dealing with the transition from steam to diesel in Ireland and how that transpired here with a focus on some of the problems when they brought in the, the EMD switcher-type locomotives, a 121 class, you call them, and because of the single-cab arrangement or the end-cab arrangement, it, it caused a problem in that it made it difficult for them to use a single man in the cab if the locomotive was running, as you would say, bonnet first, or we'd say long hood first. And what I'm really interested in, in talking about today is how the single man in a cab came about, And because you've run freight and passenger trains here for, I'd say, more than 60 years now, um, with one man in the cab, but there's a lot of there's a lot of other infrastructure involved and a lot of other personnel involved, and I just if you could kind of expand upon that. Yeah, okay, Brian, well... The first diesels to come to Ireland were shunting engines which came in in 1948 and they were confined to yard duties and had one man in the cab but they never left a yard, they, they shunted yards. A very, very small, lightweight type of engine. Small, lightweight locomotives, yeah. Right. Then in 1952 rail cars came, multiple units, for intercity passengers and under the then existing agreements which existed both in Ireland and in Britain there were a, a grade called motormen who happened to be uh, locomotive drivers transferred across and the rail cars, you know, drivers liked them. They were they were clean. Uh, you could go to work in your clean clothes and come home in your clean clothes. Um, but then in the in the middle fifties, the order went in for the big order went in for diesel locomotives. Um, for I think ninety four diesel locomotives. And we we talked about those previously. Those are the Metrovic engines, Metrovic with the Crosley engines. diesel inside. And with that came the need to uh, come to an agreement about who should be in the cab. Now, CIE, as it was then, produced two mainline diesel locomotives. Yes, CIE. Why don't you spell that out? CIE is the Irish Nationalised Transport Company, Corus Umper Airden, or in, okay. in the English language, the Irish Transport Network. Okay, and they, they handled both the railway, canals, buses? They ra- handled railways, canals, city buses, long-distance buses, uh, hotels, and ferries to the Iron Islands. All right. So uh, it is still the holding company for Irish Rail. And it's a state, state hold, it's a it's semi-state? A, it's, 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 a, it's a 100% state-owned company. Okay. So they built two mainline diesels, uh, two Bobo diesels in about 1948-49. But they retained firemen because they kept the steam heat boiler okay. in, the, in the cab. And as in Britain, the firemen managed the steam heat boiler. Now, come 1955, when the first of the Crosleys came, um, the unions were called in. And after a series of discussions, a, a deal was arrived at. And the deal was as follows. One, if drivers were displaced, older drivers would be put out on a pension equivalent to two thirds of their basic salary. There's a very small number with that. Secondly, they sl- stopped recruiting locomotive cleaners who were the basic entry grade. And then as firemen were de- displaced, they were moved sideways into the traffic as porters or signalmen until their time came when driver's vacancy arose and they would come back in as a driver. So there was a guy who used to drive for us on steam who was a loco inspector. He, his final 
turn of duty on steam was on a horrible winter's night like this um, and going across Cherryville Junction they pulled the drawbar out of a wagon they got sorted out he went back the following Monday he reported to the traffic three years later he came back to train on diesels and waiting in the pigeonhole for him was a disciplinary form saying please explain why three years ago you broke a train at Cherryville Junction so fellas moved sideways right and back in um, and that if you the the the, the drivers and firemen were um, were spread over three unions um, one of the union was the, is the footplate union ASLEF which is still the predominant union in Britain and they obviously would have had a, a fear that if the they didn't want what was happening in Ireland to spread to Britain if you like to have a contagion um, and by and large it didn't but the economic position of the railways in Ireland in the mid 50s was much much worse than it was in Britain at that stage so single manning came in and so it was done for economic reasons it was done for economic reasons there is a story I don't know how true it is that the the the, um, the company had money put aside to pay extra for single manning but that the, un- the three unions never made a claim where, where you have like in my day job I'm a union official and where you have a, multi- a multiplicity of unions covering the same grade you know you can have a loss of focus but anyway that's the way it was um, was there much resistance when they brought in though? I mean, did people get upset over it or was it pretty much accepted? Well, the story was, and, and I mean, all I can do is look at the old articles of the Railroad Records Society Journal where a number of drivers who were members of the society or engineers, as you'd call them in America, have written articles, one of whom was the union branch secretary. And the way one guy explained it was, well, the senior guys were the guys who held the union position and they were drivers and the drivers were looked after. Right. And, you know, so the, the votes so they were kept, there. They kept people and, and the firemen were kept on board because they were told... You'll move sideways into the traffic, you'll retain your rate, and then you'll come back to the, dri- the driving in, in, in due course. Uh, and the cleaners, the younger guys, were let go. Right. So when it came to the end of steam, which happened here in March 1963, March being then the end of the financial year, the reason they finished with steam is that they had almost run out of the people in the traditional line of promotion to drivers. They said, we're going to start a new way of training drivers, they're going to be guards or conductors, as you use call them, with a certificate. And then they said, right, we're going to train these people in the classroom and they're going to become drivers. And if we still have steam, we're going to have a, a group of firemen. And mathematically, how can we integrate their two seniority dates? Because in, in the railway here, a lot of stuff runs on seniority. And in the, in the end... As it does in America yeah. as well. Seniority is very important. Yeah, so in the end, the most difficult thing to do is to integrate two lines of seniority. And they said, look, the simplest thing to do is just end steam. So steam ended here, not for financial reasons, not for engineering reasons, not because that the stock was clapped out. It was pretty much clapped out, but there were some useful reserve locomotives. It ended because there was no other way of running the human resource side of the business other than to have one seniority list, and that involved the end of steam. Right. And how many steam en- just Jared, curiously, mm-hmm. how many steam engines were left, say, in 1963? Was it 10 In 1963, or there would have been about 20 or 30. As a reserve, yeah. yeah. Now, one of the reasons that the reserve wasn't needed, the reserve was built up on the anticipation of availability levels such as the Crosley diesels gave us, the English-built diesels. And then the EMD locomotives came and availability just rocketed. And the steam reserve wasn't needed and was right. was in general scrapped on a few survivors. Well, we found in America that, you know, a diesel could do the job of several steam locomotives because it was available almost all the time. Yeah. It didn't have to have the ashes cleaned. It didn't have to have all this work done to yeah. it. So one locomotive could do the job of three or four of, of steam locomotives. And the other thing is that there's a boiler, fa- a boiler failure in a steam locomotive. You've probably got to wait about eight hours before a boiler smith can go near it. 
Right. Whereas if something goes wrong on a diesel, you just shut it down and provide, you know, provided the electrics aren't live, you can do anything you like. Right. And of course, the availability of the, the availability of the diesel and the reliability of the yeah. diesel was just so much better. With yeah, with one exception, the, a foreman who was a trade foreman, who had a shed which had both said, the difference between steam and diesel, is when a steam engine goes wrong, you know immediately what goes wrong, and it takes an age to fix it. When a diesel goes wrong, it takes an age to find out what goes wrong, and you generally you fix it in a few moments. Right, and that's that's the essential difference between the two. Again, my name is Brian Solomon, and we're speaking with Peter Rigney, and we're in Dublin this evening, and we're talking about single-man operation and the transition from steam to diesel operations here in Ireland. And what I think is interesting is, with a few exceptions, for the most part, here in Ireland, as in most of Europe, um, it's one man in the cab. However, the whole operation of railways here is really quite different than the United States. And we were going to talk a little bit about some of the signaling issues and how on the main line and on the branch lines and even coming into the yards, virtually every movement would be completely signaled. Yeah, I mean, on most lines here are on CTC. Right. Are a, are, a are a variant of CTC. So control can see where you are at any time. So while you've got a single man in the cab, and there's a variant of that on passenger work, and I'll come back to that. But, for example, the longest freight run in Ireland would be 210 miles, and that would be split between two drivers. And at no point are they running the train on any running line without any signalling. No, abso- absolutely not. There is, right. there, there, is, there is always signalling. Now, the one thing you would have, it may be different from America, if you get um, a call from the signalman saying, go down and inspect your train in the Dublin area, uh, you, you're either on double or quad track, and you know those other tracks could be signaled for a for a um, hundred mile an hour running. Right. So if you're doing a train inspection, you have to call in and get signal signal protection. In other words, things are stopped while you go down and inspect. But the it'd, train. Be, it'd be relatively unusual for the driver to have to get out of the the, the engine cab unless there's a failure. Okay. Unless he's told, you know, there's there's a problem uh, with maybe an engine or a gearbox. And well, sorry, on on most of our passenger stuff is rail car operated. Right. You know, go down and and you know try and restart an engine under, under the fourth car. He has to go down and do it. Okay. So if there's a failure, the driver has to get has to go down. But and do the it. the the controller, or we call the dispatcher, the yeah. signalman, yeah. can provide him signal protection while he's doing that. If there's if he's on multiple lines, a lot yeah. of our lines are signal are single tracked. Okay. Um, so you you know you ha- you 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 have that protection from being. And then right where on. there are, I'd call them passing sidings. You yeah. call them loops. Loops. A, yeah. a siding is a completely different yeah. thing here, but. So well, let's just call it a passing siding for the moment. Yeah. Um, you have trap points. You've got a, basically a derail so that a, a train can't simply roll out onto the main line once it's in a siding. There's a, a, an actual physical prevention. For There's that. a rule against if you like the Lake Megantic thing. Couldn't happen. Couldn't happen. Well, uh, we don't have the same. We don't have the same size of mountains and mountainous right. railways. But in jet, where you have a loop, you have a, a switch and you have a stub track. Right. So if the train runs away it'll hit a buffer stop at low speed. Right. And it can't, it cannot, even, even, even if it went lined into the main line, there's a set of points. So it's not just with the derail, but it's actually directed away. It's not derailed. It runs into it. It runs into a dead end. Right. With the stop. Um, and that's... And that's universal. That's universal. And um, with most, um, most lines are signalled. One line that's not signalled is the branch from 
Navin Junction and Drogheda to Tarla Mines to the lead zinc mine. Okay. That's not CTC. That's traditional semaphore working. But they have a staff to get in or something. They have a, a staff or a token. And a staff, again, is a piece of metal. It's a, it's it's a, a piece of metal with the, the names of the two stations engraved on it. Right. And but you can only have, what, one train at a you time? You can only have one out of the machine at any one time. Right. So, so it's, it's, in theory, it's impossible to have more than The driver will not leave unless he has that piece of metal in his hand. And that's a very old system. It dates back that to... That goes back to their... Well... It goes back to the Regulation of Railways Act 1889, which changed the law in both Ireland and Britain because um, a train load of kids going to the seaside stopped on a hill. Yes, and I think we talked about this in, yeah, a, in a previous... The Armagh disaster. Yeah. And that brought in three fundamental things, lock, block and brake. In other words, your brakes must be automatic, you must have block signalling and you must interlock your signals. Right. And that would have... That would have laid down the, the 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 legal system, but as I said, freight distances are much shorter in in um, in Ireland because you know, we're a small island. And on, on top of that, the trains are, are tiny by American standards. By American standards, they would be tiny. Yeah. I mean, the largest freight train yeah. you'd have would be eighteen bogey wagons, which yeah. is, you know, eight, eighteen, 18 wagons with, with trucks, if you yeah. like, as opposed yeah. to four yeah. wheelers. Yeah. So it's, it, it is different in that respect. And then the weight is much, much less. Remember, the, the Sugar Beet was one of the heaviest trains, and it was about, I think the big ones were about 830 tonnes, and the smaller ones yeah. were 780 yeah. tonnes. And that, that's a, a metric yeah. ton, but still... Still, I mean, but um, a train a train full of 18 full containers on going to Ballina would be fairly heavy, about seven 800 tonnes. Yeah, but we're not talking 17,000, no, 20,000 tonnes. You're not. Yeah, you're yeah. not. So there is, there is that difference, and you have the difference of you have the radio... And you have you have maintenance, right? And you have people on the ground. I mean, there's if a train breaks down, there's generally there's other people around. It's well, like if it happens in the middle of nowhere, the driver just has to radio in and wait for maintenance to come out yeah, and but, try and fix but it. Your middle of the nowhere might be what 10, ten miles from somewhere else. Yeah, so it's not like a hundred miles. No, and you, you know the grand expanse of the Utah desert or something. Yeah, or, yeah. no, you know, no, I mean, no. the middle of nowhere here is still relatively no. populated. It is, yeah, and you. There are very few, and even on a night like this, if you're travelling through the countryside, um, and you switch off the locomotive headlight for a moment, you'll see a speck of light where, yeah. where somebody lives, and then you put on the headlight again. And on passenger trains, if you look at the more modern rail cars, the South Korean rail cars, there's a software system which operates through Google Maps, and that will be able to tell the fleet controller. And what's that called? It's called Nexala. Nexala, and that's and a relatively new thing. It's a relatively new thing. And it allows faults to be predicted rather than resolved. So instead of the train breaking down in the middle of nowhere, they'll get a fault. In the they'll get a fault and the driver might be told, look, in the, in the next station, maybe isolate the engine in the, in, in the third car because it's going to give trouble and just go that bit slower. Um, but the interesting thing about Nexala, and the chief mechanical engineer did a presentation on this matter, is the, the key thing key statistic is miles between service-affecting failures, SAFs. And Nexala um, was introduced and gradually, you know, the, the miles between service-affecting failures increased. And then a while later, it just rocketed up because it took a while for people to learn what the system could do. Like any new system, it comes out of the box, it, people make great uh, claims for it, but, you know, people have to learn it. And it was the learning of the, the fleet managers and the, and the trade staff that worked out, you know, how to, how to get the best out of it. Right. And again, 
here in Ireland now, it's primarily passenger. I mean, it's, it's, it's primarily passenger. And the company has moved back. The company originally, about 10 or 15 years ago, did away with guards or conductors, as you call them, on the vast majority of trains. So you could have a passenger train, say, on a Friday evening uh, with eight cars with maybe 700 people. And the only, the only person on the train is, is the, the driver. Is the driver. And uh, somebody on, on the catering trolley who works for a subcontractor. Now, the company have now decided that maybe they made a strategic mistake in moving. You know, most of the customers are on the train most of the time. They spend a very short time in the stations. So now the, the com- company are cutting back on station staff, but recruiting people into onboard customer service roles. And, and this is in addition to revenue protection. Okay. It's just somebody to say, like I was going to Galway the other day, and the lady said, I am the train manager. I will be walking through the train. We are stopping at the following stations. You will see me walking through the train. And if you have any problems, talk to me. Right, well, that's good. And that also stops, that acts as a deterrent to antisocial behaviour because if people, particularly on a Friday evening, if somebody's going down the country to a party and they, you know, bring a few beers with them, things can maybe get a bit unruly. Right. And if you have someone on board, you prevent that. And, and indeed, there are some trains that have a little red note in the timetable that's saying no alcohol will be consumed on these trains. And is that something relatively new? Uh, it's over the, over the last... Uh, couple of years and it's not I mean would, one would expect it might be you know football excursions it's not it's weekend trains going to selected uh, destinations where people go to for pre-wedding parties for stag parties or hen right. parties there, there's been a clampdown on, on the consumption of alcohol well let's let's go back to the freight side yeah. for a minute um, there's a few freight flows you've got a, a liner that goes from Ballina to Dublin or Dublin Ballina yeah. There's a, some timber trains. The logs that go from Ballina to Waterford and from Westport to Waterford. Right, and then you've got the, the Terramine zinc trains. Terramine, the zinc trains from, from Navan to Dublin. And then plus you've got a variety of Pertway trains. There's a steel train that comes out of Waterford. A steel train comes out of Waterford Port. Uh, there's, the, there's the materials train which goes around taking spent materials. And you have the hubs high up, high up the ballast system. So it's a, it's a very sophisticated way of laying ballast down. Yeah, it, I think it replaced two. Con- conventional ballast trains which right. were the oldest rolling stock we had in the system yeah. which went back I think to pre-1924 was the old Great Southern and Western Railway yeah. uh, and there were four wheel trucks now these are modern bogey trucks where uh, the guard because the, on, on a ballast train you do have a guard but the, the job of the guard is to control the discharge of ballast through uh, he is a controller that sits on his belt and he's maybe on the ground the, the driver is moving the train at a low speed and the, and the ballast guard is working out where you drop the ballast. And we've said before that the longest run for a freight train is 210 miles. Two, that would be from Waterford to Ballina. That would be and, but even the then, that would, it wouldn't be one driver that would take it No, there, there, would be, there would be an interlink working out. Like the driver would go a certain distance or might travel a bit passenger and take another train. Right. And again, what's different here is, is you know, a level of frequency that would be greater than a lot of American main lines, and that, especially on the Cork line. Cork line, on the main Cork service... You have a train every hour on the hour between both ends of the line. Then on top of that, you have to the subsidiary destinations like Galway, you have a train every two hours, Waterford a train every two hours, Westport a train every three hours. So you'd be fairly, you know, fairly frequent. Um, in, and in, in, in the, the Dublin, Dublin suburban area, I mean, the trains are very frequent. The trains, the trains would be, well, on, on the dark side, on the electric side, they're every 10 minutes. Right. So you, yeah, you do get... It, well, it's it's a, it's a it's a mass transit railway is the dirt, yeah. and I think half the total passenger carryings of the railway in the country are in the in the Greater Dublin area yeah, of the dirt. The suburban, and yeah. I mean, I, I met with Peter Smith a while ago, about a month or so ago, and he was saying that they're 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 close to hitting the fifty million 
yeah. um, annual passenger mark. Yeah. And they're very close to that now, and I think they expect to hit that probably either this year or next year. So They will, and, and I mean, one of the things that is being looked at is um, the, is where we put houses and there's you know work being done at a policy level in government to say you, you got to put houses if you can near Let, let's, pick, let's pick up that with a, another podcast uh, we've mm. just about hit our, our 20 minutes I just wanted you to do one thing because we didn't do this last time you're, you're fluent in Irish and yeah. I was wondering perhaps if you could c- conclude this by giving people a little bit of the Irish language just tell them something in Irish maybe a farewell or something well, Slán Liv Galeirog is Tarsulagum Govinshev Tanaz Asamedri Laragum. And that means? Uh, goodbye to you all, and I hope you enjoyed what I had to say. <laughs>